There was a lot of sadness, pain, frustration, fear, grief, anger, all of the things that come with having worked so hard to build a robust community of over 60,000 people and stitch together a team and stitch together a vision and all the things just to have, you know, a global pandemic come along and have to pause. You're listening to Create Community. I'm your host, Marsha Drucker. On this podcast, we're exploring the human side of community. I'm chatting with some amazing community builders to define what community truly means. Joining me today is Jody Kovitz. Jody is the founder and CEO of Move the Dial, a global movement and community to advance the participation and leadership of all women in tech. Move the Dial has touched over 60,000 people at events throughout the world. Jody sits on several tech company advisory boards, and previously her career was in law. This episode is raw and vulnerable. Jody and I take the filter off, and we talk about the devastating effect that COVID had on her community and the painful decision to put a pause on operations. We talk about where the dial is now and how small actions can move the dial for those around us in profound ways. Jody's journey as a community builder is inspiring and full of lessons and hope for the future. So let's jump right into it. All right, Jody, welcome to Create Community. I'm super excited to chat with you today. I'm so happy to be here, Marsha. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we've been in touch so much over the last few years and so much of our journey has overlapped, but I'm really excited for this conversation to really take a deep dive into your world as a community builder. So to start these episodes, I really love to get an understanding of how people actually became community builders in the first place. I don't think that anybody ever sets out to be a community builder. We all sort of fall into it in very unique ways. And for you, something that I find really interesting in your early journey is that you grew up as part of a pretty big mixed family with quite a few siblings. So I'm wondering what that experience was like for you. And do you think that that had some kind of impact on your passion and love for community and bringing people together? Fantastic question. And like, yes, you know, I feel very fortunate that I've had a number of different experiences with community. So first of all, my family and families have always been extremely important to me. So my number one concentric circle of top priority in my life has always been my family. And the notion of family being community and sharing over values and traditions and rituals was always sort of infused for me in my very early life in my home with my mom and my stepfather Bernie and the notion of helping each of us feel we were a member of the family that really mattered and having authentic conversation and our perspectives being valued and listened to was always super important as well in my other home in Calgary where I grew up with my dad and my ex-stepmother family was incredibly important and each of us contributing and even though I wasn't always around because I lived in Toronto and they lived in Calgary I always felt like I was brought right back into the family so that was sort of I would say early early tactics and experiences with building community And then I was very fortunate to go to a school that had an incredible community. I went to a school called Bialik Hebrew Day School. I was highly privileged to have the opportunity to go to a private Jewish school. But understanding and being part of a Jewish community and my Jewish identity was really important to me when I was growing up. Not because I was religious, and I'm not religious actually, but I was very spiritual and connected through ritual. And community is such an important tenet of 
Jewish law and Jewish practice and Jewish tradition, that that was also ingrained in me very early on. For me, from a very early age, being part of community has always been important and probably informed a lot of why I became a community builder. That's super interesting. And, you know, I I spoke about this in more detail in another episode with David Yaris, but it's really interesting. Like I'm also Jewish, but I think we've had such a different experience in that early journey. I grew up as part of a really tiny family as an only child without really any cousins even. And I didn't really get into my Jewish identity until I was in my mid twenties when we were living in Canada and when I had the opportunity to go on birthright and really explore it um, from my own lens. But it's it's so interesting to hear how that community has really has shaped you and, and brought you to where you are today. So I know that you started your career in law. What drew you to the profession and what did you enjoy about working in law in those early years? And what did you learn about yourself? I was drawn to law because I was fascinated by sort of the concept of social order and principles, righteous principles, if that makes any sense. Very sort of, I was always super fascinated by the concept of principles by which we live. And I was fascinated by that in my home. I was fascinated by that when I studied sociology in my undergrad degree. I mean, I I wasn't in sociology. I took one sociology class. I have a business degree, but I was curious about social order and the way of the world. And also my father and stepfather are also lawyers. So I was always exposed to the concept of the legal system and arguing different points of view. And I, in addition to sort of being fascinated by the concept of social order, I was always motivated and driven to be able to support myself and be financially independent, having grown up with a single mom. And so becoming a lawyer for me at the time that I made that choice was very much driven by those two pieces, both my interest in the topic, as well as my desire to be able to support myself with a, as a professional. And I went into the profession and you know, actually quite enjoyed law school. I had worked for a couple of years before I went to law school. So I really appreciated having the opportunity to study and I saw it as a great privilege. And then I was very lucky to go to a law firm called Torkin Mains. I spent 10 years there. I learned a tremendous amount from an incredible teacher and tour whose name is Lauren Wolfson. I was very, very lucky to learn from a very established family lawyer in the area that I was so passionate about. And he gave me a ton of rope. He really encouraged my entrepreneurial spirit and like really let me make my own mistakes and learn that way as well as he took mentoring and teaching very, very seriously. And so through that time I grew, I became both, you know, a skilled litigator as a family law lawyer, as well as an entrepreneur, having built my family law practice with a very thoughtful and methodical plan year over year. And while I was proud of my skills developing and my ability to help clients, as well as my impact on the firm as a business generator, I'm dying inside. If I could write a letter to my little self years ago, and that's something I've been doing a lot of lately, I would say, dear little self, if your star goes out, which normally shines bright when your soul is happy, pay attention to that. Because I probably spent a number of years too long in that role as a as a lawyer, knowing that my, my star was out. That was a great sort of insight for me to learn about myself and recognize that me staying was fear and maybe some ego more than uh, it making my star shine. 
Absolutely. I mean, I, I love that you bring that up and you really do have to pursue, you know, what sets your soul on fire and what's going to make your star shine bright. So I love that you recognize that. And, you know, I'm sure it was a really painful decision to leave the field that, you know, you spent so many years in and really built your reputation in. But when it's time to go, it's time to go. How did you transition out of it? And, you know, what was the next thing that you did? I went to a law firm called Osler Hoskin and Harcourt and I had reached out by cold email to an incredible woman named Ruth Woods and I had asked her if she would be willing to have a coffee with me and just tell me her story. I'd heard her speak, I was inspired and fortunately she did and it was so incredible to have that time with her and that opportunity to to learn about what the firm was doing. Now the firm was extremely forward-thinking at that time in 2012 about bringing on a strategic business development and marketing team to really think about the future of the legal business and start innovating and dramatically changing how they were doing business. I was inspired and energized by that and it was a community I wanted to join and so I was very fortunate that they brought me in and I got to help lead the strategic business development team for the litigation department of the firm working with an incredible woman Colleen Moorhead who was my boss at the time and is now a dear mentor and friend really who taught me everything I needed to know about how to do strategic business development. And a lot of people sort of will look at Move the Dial, which we'll get to, and say, well, how were you able to drive and build that community so quickly? And how were you able to obtain so many corporate partners? And it's really because of having had the great privilege of learning how to, A, build, galvanize, and excite a community of people through persuasion and influence at the most sophisticated level, authentically, A, and then B, really understand what partnership in the truest form, capital P, can look like. Because that's where corporate partners of Move the Dial, for example, and, and a whole bunch of incredible leaders and people came to galvanize around the idea that was there. And it was really because it was it was structured as a real win-win partnership. And, and I really learned how to do that. Let's jump into Move the Dial. Really curious, what inspired you to start Move the Dial? And what is it for anybody who's listening who might not be familiar with it? I created Move the Dial initially because I recognized that there was a gap in the technology industry and it started with really recognizing the gender gap. There were very few women leaders when I looked to my left and looked to my right of technology companies, of business lines within technology companies or functional areas. And I thought to myself, wow, I think we need to get more women in this industry. It really started with that simple realization. Over time, of course, and as I moved along my own inclusion journey, I recognized, whoa, not only was there you know, a complete lack of women at the top, but there was a complete lack of women from a whole variety of different backgrounds. And so when you get into looking at, are there black 
women leaders in tech? Are there gay black women leaders in tech? Are there people with disabilities starting, leading, growing technology companies? That gap was even more significant and highly problematic and something that we really needed to fix. So I saw that initially and that little idea of recognizing the gap and thinking, wow, we just need to show all the people that are leading these tech companies and in the tech industry that are not a 45-year-old white guy. And that is how the seed, the first seed of Move the Dial started as an idea. And we had an event at Mars and thought it was going to be 30 people ended up being a lot closer to a thousand people. And that was the really the first seed of Move the Dial and how it was born. That's incredible. And I know prior to that, you also spent uh, some time in Israel on a delegation, I believe, and something there sparked the a seed for it as well. What was that? Yeah. So I, I was very fortunate. I got to go to Israel with the mayor of Toronto and a whole bunch of other tech leaders. And when I was on that trip, we actually spent a day in Ramallah. And in that moment, there were a whole bunch of tech founders that were getting up and sharing their story. And there was a woman who got up and was talking about her online lingerie delivery business. It was such a juxtaposition. Here we are in one of the most modest countries in the world. And yet this modern young woman who's building her tech company is getting up talking to this room of mostly men (laughs) in the tech industry in Toronto about her lingerie business. And I started writing voraciously and had a ton of ideas. So at the macro level, I noticed there was a massive gap. At the micro level, I had this moment and then I had this epiphany that we could come back from the trip, tell the story of having gone to Israel, learned some of the best tips from the Israel ecosystem and community around how they build and showcase their community and became such a thriving ecosystem, as well as then start to showcase more women in our ecosystem to hopefully that uh, inspire more women to go into STEM and stay, actually, which is one of the greatest challenges. That's really incredible. Similar for me, like I, I've lived in Israel for, for about a year and I started my community in 2017 after being inspired by something that I saw in Israel, going to a fuck up night, just really resonating with it on a deep level and, and realizing that, you know, we need something like this in Toronto and we need this community in Toronto. Also had my first event in, in 2017. And also I thought it was going to be, you know, 20, 30 people and it ended up being 100, not 1,000. But it, and it, it really grew quickly from there. Tell me about the evolution of your community. You know, you had that first event with over 1,000 people and clearly it was something that like truly resonated with people in the city and it was something that we really needed. How did you grow it from there and how did it evolve? I mean, building community is a real art. And for me, at the highest level, building community is really about, first of all, having authentic passion. That was part of, I think, what worked with Move the Dial. People that came to the first event and that then form the the basis or the foundation of the community was really about there is one very big opportunity for us in the ecosystem. And I think part of the positive framing around there's an opportunity was really important. And we all, the people that were in the foundation of the community saw the opportunity and saw also the opportunity to come together as a strong community with buzz, with excitement, with gusto to really work together to make an impact and change what the industry looked like. So I think having a very singular focus around we need more women in tech, we need all of the women 
with different lived experiences and with different people identifying as women to be able to come together and participate meaningfully in advance. So part one was this very powerful singular mission. Part two was having it be something really positive and framed as an opportunity. And number three was I think when I go back to the like grass grass roots of where Move the Dial started, there was this real charge around working together as a community in the form of being a community grassroots organization. Now, I could speak about how hard it is to maintain that and fund that and enable that when everybody was doing it off the side of their desks, which is why Move the Dial evolved and and changed and the community grew and it was very, you know, big and thriving when we had to pause operations recently. But at the same time, if I could go back, I would say really staying focused on how to engage and connect with the community as a movement was so, so critical. And in order to build a community that is sustainable over the long term, I think it's really important to have that clarity around the mission and ensure that every step that you are taking as you grow it is aligned with that mission. And it's for me and the way that I live my life, I try to look at every opportunity for growth as that rather than get too hard on myself about it. I think there's lots of lessons to be learned in terms of the secret of getting people together and keeping them together is is building your community with your people and not for them. And that was a massive insight I had through sort of reflecting on the very early days of Move the Dial. We were building the community together versus sort of as it became an organization and I was trying to provide programming that was in and do things for the organization, but then had to go get it funded and all the things, there was that shift from building with to building for. And I would really encourage community builders that are listening to really think about that dichotomy. And actually a friend of mine who's a really expert community builder came up with that concept in his book called Get Together. Kai Almersoto wrote this book and I cannot take credit for that line of building with versus building for, but when I read about that concept, it resonated super, super deeply for me. And I think there's an opportunity to really think about how do you build with instead of for. Yeah, I think it's such a critical thing as well. And it's a really big theme that comes up and it's so tough to balance with community is a lot of work and bringing people together and bringing value to your members is a lot of work to keep it consistent. So you have to find ways to monetize it at some point and to make it bigger through that. But a lot of the time you could kind of lose what what the core of the community is. Tell me a little bit more about those early days. What made the community so magical and what were some of those ways that you were bringing these community members together? You know, I know that you had some larger scale events, but I know you had some really intimate ones as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really about listening. Even in the later years, the smaller events and the large events, when we really listened to what people wanted and needed, i.e. built with, we had a great impact. Even the summit that we did, you know, our last summit in 2019 was 3,400 people. It was based on asking a lot of questions around the kind of content that our community wanted. So for example, they enjoyed the main stage, but they also wanted smaller workshop style, very practical skill building opportunities in our community. So we delivered that and we'd never really done it before. We had always sort of been more focused on the inspirational, aspirational, large keynote format. And we shifted and those workshops sold out before the summit even started. People were blown away by the opportunities. People were starving for more of it. And the only limitation we had was our capacity. We were in a large venue, Roy Thompson Hall with very small workshop spaces. And so that was really an interesting example 
example of the power of the listening and building with versus just doing what we thought made sense. Listening to our users and community members and participants of our programming. So that was one. At the very beginning, part of it was really about starting with the end in mind, as Stephen Covey would say, sort of where do we want to go? What do we want to achieve? How can we be data driven? And how can we organize around different areas as volunteers that each of us are passionate about? And that approach was just deeply powerful. Now, of course, it is difficult to lead and drive a volunteer run organization when everybody is operating off the side of their desks and there's no funding. And I was doing it off the side of my desk and wasn't taking any kind of compensation for the work. So it couldn't be what I was doing full time at that time. And of course, as you said, you know, you have to change the model and and move towards being able to fund the work. And it makes it more difficult to work together as a whole bunch of volunteers where there isn't a clear leader. But I think part of the magic was having it initially be really a community driven concept or movement versus being a formal organization. And I have zero regret over anything we did to move it, but it is what it is. And at the same time, as I'm reflecting on how to resurrect it, I'm thinking very deeply about going back to the grassroots and how you engage people in a meaningful way. And it really, I think, is through them feeling like they are part of it and they are contributing towards it and and really co-designing it to make it come to life. And I think that for community builders who are very early in, in building on and designing their communities, really thinking critically about who are those critical advisors and or community builders you want to have with you and around you at the beginning and how do you keep them actively engaged as time goes on and, and you know, you get busier being the executive director or CEO of uh, your organization. Those relationships of the foundational community builders that really believe in you and what you're trying to do are really important. And so invest in and keep those people engaged. I think it's so hard to do when you're actually in the middle of it and you have a million things going on and you're trying to scale it and really create the most impact. But I think looking back on it or even now as you're thinking of ways to resurrect it, one of the most important things that you could do really is ask your community, whether it's doing a survey or, you know, talking to those people that, you know, have been extremely active in your community, you know, people that have been at, at multiple events that have engaged with you before and that are really invested. In it. What kind of programming are they looking for? What kind of virtual events are they interested in? I think a lot of insights can kind of come from there. And as I'm saying this, I'm also going to try to take this advice for myself and for my own community as I look to plan for, for the fall and for the winter. Tell me a little bit more about the instant impact of COVID. What happened immediately there and what made you decide that you had to pause operations on it? I think we were in a really amazing and interesting place where we were in year three of operations. I had a very large team. I think we were 24 at the moment that we decided we had to pause. We were building an app. We had planned 75 in-person events in 2020 including the summit, which was going to be for 3,000 to 5,000 people, as well as events all over the world, small events, large events, workshops, classes, seminars, you know, stories, events, etc. So we were in a position where we were working quite hard to pivot the future revenue model, not to rely so heavily on the funding of and impact of in-person events, 
and starting to build more of an online community so that we could deliver at scale. And I needed 2020 to be able to do that. So we were in the process of testing and piloting our app with customers. We were in the process of building out what our online community could look like and doing all of those things. But the revenue model to run the operations and pay the staff and keep everything moving was reliant on the income that was projected on the basis of those in-person events and our corporate partnerships, which in large part depended on these magic moments we created in person. So initially when COVID hit, I mean, we got ourselves very quickly in a place of reimagining what Move the Dog could look like and a whole series of digital events, things that we may still very much start to execute in the coming months. But I didn't think in that moment that it made sense for us to move everything digitally because I wasn't sure that at that time in the emergent moment of COVID that our events virtually were going to be a high enough priority or or impact for our community when they were dealing with so many other things and where the magic of our connecting was happening in person and where I needed the revenue from the in-person version of the events. I, I didn't feel like in good faith I could ask our corporate partners to fund events, right? When they were all sort of in a state of crisis and emergency. So we made the very difficult decision to just pause and take the time to reflect and think about how to appropriately emerge. We've been doing that. We are still doing that. We are hard at work on a number of different models and and ways of thinking of bringing the community back and or delivering value again to the community in a much more regular way. And and we're in process of that. And it's just been an opportunity to really be at peace with having had to make that difficult decision. And when I say at peace, like that's been a long journey. There was a lot of sadness, pain, frustration, fear, grief, anger, all of the things that come with having worked so hard to build a robust community of over 60,000 people and stitch together a team and stitch together a vision and all the things just to have, you know, a global pandemic come along and have to pause. But Marsha, at the highest level, I'm in gratitude. I'm healthy. My daughter's healthy. My family's healthy. We're extremely privileged relative to many humans around the world who've lost their lives, their livelihoods, and who are in the, the trenches every day. And as well, certainly, you know, as a white, highly privileged, able-bodied, cisgender woman, you know, I haven't been going through what a lot of my peers have been dealing with in the Black Lives Matter moment that we are in and the grief and tragedy that is profoundly felt by so many of my friends. So I feel sad and it's been hard. And at the same time, there's been tremendous growth and I have enormous gratitude and I've been really trying to use this opportunity to think deeply about our community and how we can give to them in the way that makes sense and also that in a way that is sustainable for the organization long term. That's really incredible. Well, thank you for sharing all of that and for being so open with your journey. It was a similar experience for me with Fuck Up Nights. We were poised for such an exciting year for 2020, had, you know, so many exciting initiatives and events on the horizon. And again, like everything had to be paused with what's going on. And I remember that same feeling at the beginning. It was really, it was grief. It was feeling lost and sad about what to do with it. But there was also that feeling of gratitude 
gratitude. And part of it was even, I'm almost a little bit embarrassed to say, but maybe part of it was relief as well, because I think it, it had gotten too big in some ways, which you might be able to relate to. And I felt myself burning out and it, it looked so incredible on the outside. But for me personally, it was getting really tough to balance it. And here was this opportunity to be able to really reflect on it and, and think about a way to, to bring it back when the time is right in a way that is bringing value to the community, but it's something that's sustainable. So I'm really curious to see what evolves next for you and for Move the Dial and how you you bring it back from the pause and it makes sense for the community. Where do you think the dial is now? You know, with everything going on, it's tough to read about things like the pandemic, she session, and how many women are having to step out of the workforce to care for young kids with school closures. I read a stat saying something like in Canada that 1.5 million women have lost their jobs in the first two months of the pandemic. All of this stuff is really heartbreaking to read and to learn. What can we do to support women in tech during these turbulent times, just as individuals and as a community, maybe not as part of this huge organization, but just on a a day-to-day level? I think we're in a really difficult moment in time and we're all going through it in different ways as a society, as individual communities, as individuals, families, as individual people. I'm very nervous about the impact of the pandemic, particularly on the most marginalized folks in society. There's tons of data starting to come out, including by the United Nations, that typically marginalized folks are being deeply more marginalized than more privileged and that the divide is widened deeply through this pandemic. I'm secondly concerned for a lot of the advances specifically with respect to women. We are undoing a lot of the progress that we've made and women having the lion's share according to the data of the home responsibilities in addition to working and trying to juggle all of the different responsibilities is a very significant problem and sort of the a new world of work, I don't think, has developed or caught up with the reality of the demands and difficulty presented by this situation of women having to now do more jobs, even more jobs, and impacting, therefore, the advancement and opportunities for meaningful change, both in the tech and innovation sector, but also just generally speaking in the corporate world. So I'm very, very concerned about it. I'm sort of reflecting deeply on how do we solve it amongst you know many other thinkers in this space but I think it is not something that can be addressed solely as a women's issue I think we have to take a deeply intersectional and thoughtful approach to how we are going to solve this problem how we design a new world of work that reflects the reality and also bearing in mind the impact of COVID-19 on the historically most marginalized folks including very specifically um, our black friends community. Absolutely. And I think what you said is so right on. It's not something that's going to be solved overnight and there's not going to be some kind of like sweeping thing that's that's going to solve this huge issue that's happening now. I think something that really stands out to me in, in your new book, and it's all about how one small act can move the dial in business and in life. What are some key lessons and action items that you can share with our listeners from your book and how can we apply this learning to what's going on now? Like what are some small acts that we could do to really help women and marginalize groups during everything that's going on? 
Fundamentally, you know, in my book, what I talk a lot about is the power of small acts and the notion of how can I go out of my way to help another human being in the way that feels most natural? Can I open a door? Can I share a skill? Can I actively, meaningfully sponsor another human? Can I offer my time? Can I pull up a chair at my table? Can I create a board opportunity, you know, at my company? Can I actively seek out someone who brings a different perspective and lived experience for my board opportunity? Can I be more thoughtful in my recruiting process? Can I hold space for someone who is trying to parent as well as lead a team in my company? Can I be flexible and patient and give them more flexible working hours? Can I, what are the things that I can do to go out of my way to help another human? And this generosity of spirit in small acts, actually, I believe, collectively creates a ripple effect of what will move the dial. Nothing has changed for me in my perspective around that. I just think we need that more. More generosity of spirit, more coming together, connecting in this highly disconnected and fragmented world, more empathy. And I think that, you know, the more that each of us can go out of our way a little bit more than feels comfortable, an active step to help another human, the more we will be able to actually, you know, work towards our recovery at the moment, as well as frankly, it feels really, really good when you go out of your way and meaningfully can move the dial for someone else. So I want to jump into your personal community. I think it's really fascinating how community builders actually navigate their personal communities outside of the communities that they've built. I think right now is such an interesting time for you. It's really, you know, a time of reflection, a time where you have a lot more flexibility and time to kind of explore and think about how you want to emerge from all of this. What are some things that are bringing you joy these days and how are you sort of spending your days right now? Yeah, well, I started a podcast called Joyful Sundays. I'd love everyone to go listen to it. You can find it on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And it was really the focus of that was really to talk about how are we finding joy? So this exact question. And for me, the process of thinking through with my guests and and myself, how do we want to emerge differently from this pandemic? How can we use this as an opportunity to chart our North Star values and then live more aligned to what those values are was a real gift. And so I did create that podcast specifically to have those conversations as I am personally thinking about what are the principles that I want to use to govern my life because the principles I was using were it wasn't really working for me I was you know building this awesome incredible movement globally but I was exhausted and I was getting sick all the time and I wasn't connected with my daughter in the way that I want and need to be even though I was having a tremendous impact on the world and building this beautiful community I had gone too far towards impact as a North Star value and had lost sort of the self-care, self-love, long game perspective. And I'm frankly lucky that I didn't get really, really sick because I was really pushing myself energetically way beyond what was humanly possible. So really using this time to think about those things, that gives me joy. I've been reading voraciously, tons of self-help and growth books, mindset, listening to podcasts, I'm outside a ton. I've set a goal to be getting the best physical shape of my life uh, by next August, 2021. So I'm working hard at that goal, slowly, thoughtfully, carefully, been reworking my Instagram and how I'm sharing 
doing my content because that's a passion project for me. And of course, starting to think deeply about how Move the Dial should resurrect and my partners and the community and how Lily and I are going to eat all of yeah. those things at the same time. <laughs> all of those things combined. I love that you brought up your daughter and that, you know, the fact that you're able to get closer to her during this time and really spend so much more quality time than before when you were, you know, traveling all over the place and so incredibly busy with Move the Dial. What is something that you hope that your daughter learns through this time and, you know, really takes away from your journey? She said to me the other day, like, I love quarantine, mommy. I'm so sad quarantine's over. It was so profound to hear that because of how connected she and I have been. And she's discovered her passion of baking and really being focused on deep connectedness. And I think that's what I hope for her to take out of this is that we always have the opportunity to create that. We just have to find the space for it. And and recognizing that in the face of global crisis, and this is a real global crisis, what the pandemic has done to our world, we always have the opportunity to go deep to what matters most. What are some communities that you're part of outside of Move the Dial and why are they meaningful to you? So I've been practicing Moto Yoga for like 20 years and I feel very connected to the Moksha and Moto Yoga community as a result of that. I also you know, grew up at a camp called Camp Tamakwa in Algonquin Park. I always feel like I'm a part of that alumni community. It was such an important part of who I am and my life. I certainly feel like an alumni of my Ivy community and all my Ivy friends that I went to undergrad with, less so in terms of my law school, but certainly in terms of my family and that being sort of the most most important community to me. You know, I think that over the coming, you know, months and years, really finding a community or two to be part of and actively in is part of my job jar. That's what I'm seeking, you know, whether that is a spiritual community, whether that is a work community, something I can do with my daughter, but I'm actively figuring out what that looks like now that I have more time and space. That's really exciting. Well, I'm, I'm excited to stay tuned and, and see what you end up choosing. So this is a little bit of a strange question, but I love asking it and hearing people's answers. How do you choose your people? The five to six people that are closest to you, do you feel like you look for certain qualities or is it just something that kind of happens more organically? For me, it's really about energy. Who, when I connect soul to soul with them, lifts me up and brings out and sees and enables the absolute best version of me and where I feel energy that is heavy, negative, and or not the best version of me, that is not a person who should go in my hub. Now, professionally, you also want people in terms of that energy who can help you attain what your professional goals are. But on a personal level, I believe very deeply that following your energy and the the authentic connection and looking for people to have close to you who see you in all of you. And so what I mean by that is who see the best of me and who where energetically we lift each other up and inspire one another and celebrate all of my successes and my joys. But also those are people who can tolerate my dark parts, my broken parts. And those are the people that matter the most to me and who I love. And if you're listening, those people, I love you and thank you. 
That's so wonderful and love that you pointed that out. And I'm so grateful for those types of people in my life as well. And I think it's it's definitely a two-way street. Who are those people that you're going to show up in that same way for and really make sure that you're always on that same page and always there for each other? It's so incredibly important to have that in your life. So my last question for you is, and I ask this of everybody on the podcast, what does the word community mean to you? To me, community is really about a sense of belonging and in a magical way. I think a community that is powerful is one that makes you feel and every person feel that they in some way belong in it. And there is a deep magic to it and it's really hard to do. And I know all the steps that I did and didn't do (laughs) to do it or didn't do it. But it's something I'll always strive for is a sense that each individual human feels that they have a place in that community and that they are valued and their perspective wanted. And that is to me the magic of building a powerful and robust community. And it's a goal I will always strive for in doing so. I love that. And I really resonate with that word as well. And I think it's at the core of how I define community as well. I love the book Belong by Radha Agrawal. I don't know if you've read it. Or, yes, or, yes yeah. of course. It's so, yeah, it's so magical. And it's all about actually belonging, not just fitting in, but like truly belonging and feeling like your home is part of that community. Awesome. Well, Jody, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. It was such a pleasure as always. My pleasure. And it was lovely to be with you as well. I had such a great time chatting with Jody, and I hope you learned as much as I did from this conversation. You can connect with Jody and find all her social handles, podcast, and book on her website, jodykovitz.com. And you can learn more about Move the Dial at movethedial.com. Thanks for tuning in to Create Community, a podcast where I chat with incredible community builders to define what community truly means. You can check out the series on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you normally listen. Please remember to subscribe and leave us a rating and review. I'd really love to hear your feedback. You can also follow us on Instagram at createcommunitypod or check out our website at createcommunitypod.com for updates. Once again, I'm Marsha Drucker, your host, signing off.